Speak to us now through your word. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Tim. I think y'all found a great worship leader when you call Tim. I think, think you'd agree with that. He's been awesome this week and great musicians. Well, we've been talking about Jesus all week. I want to ask you a question that makes him kind of strange. But have you ever thought about what you would need to do to make a spiritual decision? And think about that. What would you need to do to make a spiritual decision? And the reality is that answer is the greatest thing we need to know about God because when you read the Bible, and this may sound simplistic, but I believe with all my heart, the Bible is really an invitation from God. I believe that from Genesis to Revelation, God invites us. Now, we talk about God inviting us to salvation, which has been a main focus this week. Uh, but the truth is, even as Christians, God's always inviting us. In fact, it is so obvious when you read Scripture, Genesis, and Exodus, all through, all through the Bible. You get to the book of Revelation, and not the last verse, but two or three verses before the end of the Bible. You know what Jesus says? The Bible says, the Spirit and the bride says, come. It's almost like God is telling me, every time I read through the Bible, I think this about myself. It's almost like God is saying, Steve, just in case you're so dense that you have not got this. I'm a God who's constantly inviting you. Now, if you were last night, we talked about uh, some things you ought to know from the lips of Jesus about making life's greatest choice. And obviously, if you were here last night, we uh, learned from Jesus not everybody makes the right choice. In fact, most people don't make the right choice. But I want to carry that further and say this. The average Christian is not real good at making spiritual decisions, are we? Now, think about this. If I asked you tonight, does the Bible invite us to be people of prayer? Well, if you know anything about God, you would respond, well, absolutely. But think about this. If I asked you, well, in that case, are you a great prayer warrior? You probably wouldn't be quite as quick to respond with a yes. And so I would say if you know that God invites you to experience prayer and you're not a great prayer warrior, you obviously have a disconnect on how to say yes to making a spiritual decision to be a person of prayer. And I don't have time to go through all this, but all through the Word, we're always invite God invites us to be people of worship. Uh, God, and by the way, I go in Baptist churches all the time, and there's a lot of lack of knowledge about worshiping God. I, I can tell you that if you don't know that, that, that's everywhere. God invites us, for example, over and over, God invites us to be involved in the Great Commission. Would you agree with that? I mean, every Baptist agrees with that. Yes, statistics tell us most Southern Baptists never lead him on the cross. So undoubtedly, we have a difficult time understanding how do I say yes to the invitation from God to be a witness. And you could think of a dozen things. So if I asked you tonight, uh, first of all, if you don't know Christ, what would be the next step for you to know Christ? Uh, think about that. Then if I ask you if you're a Christian, fill in this blank. My next step of obedience to being the will of God would be blank. Well, let me ask you this question. Most of us would not have any problem saying it's worship, it's stewardship, it's whatever it is. But the question is, what are you waiting for? And I think there's a lack of understanding of how do you make a spiritual decision. So I'm going to give you a simple message tonight on how you can say yes to Jesus. And I will tell you this. Your ability to say yes to the invitation of God determines everything about your impact as a Christian on earth. Your ability to say yes to the invitation of God Number one, it determines whether you're going to get to go to heaven. But after that determining factor of going to heaven, your ability to say yes 
to what God's inviting you to do is a tremendous thing in your life. For example, God invites me to have joy. He says this, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And yet a lot of folks choose to live life bitter. They choose to live life uh, frustrated. They choose to live life uh, in a very uh, miserable type of a way. Why? Because obviously we don't understand how to respond to the invitation of God. You've heard me quote this verse this week. I'm not going to preach it tonight, but, but it's one of my favorite verses. It's not the last invitation, but it's one of the last invitations of Jesus. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus very dramatically says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Then he says, if, it's a conditional invitation. You, you ever see that word, if? If means maybe you will, maybe you won't. God's not foolish. God's not, God's not naive. He understands not everybody at Beach Haven opens the door. He says, but if you want to open the door. Well, what would happen, Lord? And the God of the universe that we just sung about says, well, if you would respond to the invitation, I would come in and I would dine with you and you could dine with me. I would fellowship with you. I would have an intimate walk with you. So I want to answer that question. I, what would it mean to say yes to Jesus from a rather uh, unusual story? And we'll talk about this as we get into it. Rather unusual encounter that Jesus had. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 17. And I'm going to read uh, what to me is about the most unusual miracle that Jesus ever did. It's just, just unusual how he did this. Luke chapter 17 beginning in verse 11. Now it happened... As Jesus went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. As Jesus entered a certain village, there met him ten men. They were lepers. They stood far off. They lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when Jesus saw them, he said to them, Go show yourself to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he returned. With a loud voice, he glorified God. He fell down on his face at the feet of Jesus, giving Jesus thanks. He was a Samaritan. Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten who were cleansed? Where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Uh, one of our outstanding former leaders in somebody's convention, Herschel Hobbs, uh, he says that phrase, your faith has made you well, has a double meaning. Uh, he says it means not only have you been healed in body, but you have been healed of sin. You've been cleansed from sin. And Herschel Hobbs says what it means is out of the ten, this one, not, not the other nine, but this one not only got healed physically, but he got the ultimate healing, he got saved. And so he made a spiritual decision. And this is an unusual passage because in this passage, I see three or four ingredients that I think are always involved in a spiritual decision. But this passage just kind of lays it out. It's an unusual miracle for a couple of reasons. First of all, usually when Jesus healed, he usually healed one person. Occasionally, you'll see a couple of people getting healed. He heals ten people here. It's very unusual. And second thing that makes it unusual is he doesn't heal them instantly on the spot. He says, go your way. Now, uh, that does happen, but it's very unusual. He tells the blind man, John 9, go to the pool, slow him. And so when the guy obeyed, he got healed also. But it's very unusual that 10 got healed. Uh, how do you make a spiritual decision? What separates this guy from the other nine? Well, first of all, if you're going to make a spiritual decision, making a spiritual decision is always an individual response. I've been doing this long enough that if I read this passage and said 10 got healed and 10 came back, well, I, I would rejoice but I'm going to be honest with you, it's easy to follow the majority. Let me give you an example. If I was sitting where you are tonight and Brother David, Dr. Mills, was preaching, 
he gave an invitation, and, and for some reason he challenged us, and just about everybody walked down. And before, before you know it, everybody's down at the altar, and I'm back, back there by myself. Can I be honest with you? It'd be tough for me not to come down and pray at the altar. It would be, it would be real hard for me to stay back there all by myself. There's something about doing things by yourself that's not always easy. Uh, the Bible says one can, it's an individual decision. But let me tell you something. We live in a demonized world, and sooner or later, you have to stand by yourself. Sooner or later, you're like Elijah standing on Mount Carmel. There might be 860 false prophets. And even when the odds are against you, God has an expectation that you obey. Let me give you an example. Uh, I don't mind when I hear people preach. I don't mind saying amens. But I'm going to confess something tonight. Every once in a while I go into a church and, well, I just tell you what I think. I don't ever tell them this. they just kind of dead churches. We've got a lot of dead churches around. I used to say we're full of dead people, but actually we're about half full now. We, we don't even fill them up with dead people anymore. If I'm in a church and there's people in the church that say amen, can I tell you, it's easy for me to say amen. If I'm sitting and not preaching and I'm just in, in a worship service and... Uh, it's easy to raise your hand, but I'll be honest with you. Every once in a while I get in a service, and maybe I'm sitting, you know, kind of where y'all are, and I'm, I'm in the midst, I'm, I'm in the middle of a group of people, and I don't know a soul. And something is said, and, uh, well, I just kind of think this way. I feel it. I, I, I feel the amen down here. You know what I'm talking about? It kinda, it's starting to come up. But unlike what y'all are doing with the laughter and the, you're, you're, you're demonstrative and saying amen, there ain't no laughter. And there's not that much singing, not like it was tonight. And I'm going to be honest with you, every once in a while I'm thinking, Lord, let me just say amen in my mind. Because I know what's going to happen. When the amen comes out, a lot of folks are going to go, Do you agree with that? It's, it's hard. You ever notice in revival meetings? You very seldom, in church's size, will see just one person come down. You ever notice that? Because if a few come down, the more of us come down. But it's hard to be the one. He made an individual decision. He made an individual response. I don't know if you ever thought this. I'm certainly not a musician at all. But I, I've watched invitation hymns. And you know what? I've discovered, and by the way, we can feel, feel led to sing any song to conclude this service. There's nothing wrong with that. But there are some songs that the author wrote for one purpose, to invite you. And I've noticed this, and correct me if I'm wrong. What I've noticed is invitation songs always have a personal pronoun. They never have a plural pronoun. You ever notice that? For example, last night we sung the most famous invitation song ever written because well, Billy Graham used it for 50 years. We didn't sing just as we are. We sung just as I am. We don't ever stand up and say, we're going to sing. We surrender all. You know why? You can't surrender anything that belongs to me, and I can't surrender anything that belongs to you. But I could stand up. And if no one else wanted to surrender anything, I could stand up with good conscience and sing, Lord, I surrender all. We don't ever sing wherever he leads we'll go. You know why? I've been doing this 30 years. We ain't going anywhere together with Jesus. We, we never have that kind of unity. Everybody don't follow Jesus. But I can stand up and sing wherever he leads. I'll go. And if I refuse to go, then God will judge me. You know, Vance Haddon used to say, Baptists don't tell lies. We just sing lies every Sunday. Well, I get judged by what I'm singing. But it's always the individual response. Here's a guy who made a decision 
because he knew he ought to make a decision. What's interesting is he makes a decision, and we learn this when we read the story. He must have been one Samaritan with nine other Jews. He was someone who was in the minority to start with. And yet he said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to worship Jesus. And by the way, it's a good thing he did because you may not have connected this. Jesus is heading towards Passover. Jesus only has a short time left to live. Had he said, I may go back next week or the week after, the week after that, uh, he would have missed his opportunity. This is the last time Jesus is passing down this road. Saying yes to Jesus is always an individual response. And, and by the way, it always blesses me, and I'll tell you why. It blesses me because since it is an individual response, we really never know all that God's doing spiritually, do we? You ever thought about that? Uh, in my mind, I've done some revivals where in my mind, I'm like, man, 100 people got saved. Well, the truth is, there's 100 people made decisions. I may not know till heaven exactly what God did. On the other hand, a little over 30 years ago, I was in a church, and just like last night, the young man who gave his life to Christ, I, I thought it was going home. I gave my life to Christ. I didn't know at the time because I didn't know enough about church work, but once I got a little bit more mature, I looked back at that time, I thought, you know, knowing preachers, and I'm one, I wonder when that week was over, that little church, I wonder if they thought, well, it, not much to show for it, just, just one old boy. But, you know, I've done hundreds of revivals. I've but what I'm saying is an individual response to God, you just never know what God may do with that. In fact, it'd be interesting to know what God's going to do with that young man who gave his life to Jesus. We have no idea how God may impact people because of that decision last night. Saying yes to Jesus is always an immediate response. Uh, the Bible says, uh, as he went, they got healed. It doesn't tell us how they knew they were healed. Remember, leprosy is a disease of the skin. And it's a disease that's very contagious, which is why they stood at a distance. It was against the law for them to get too close to anybody. Uh, in Jesus' day, they lived under Old Testament law. Had they got too close to, to anybody uh, and someone saw the leprosy, they might have been stoned to death. And so they stood at a distance. In fact, it's a horrible disease. In Jesus' day, if you had leprosy, Whenever you got close to a crowd, so many feet, you had to throw up your hand and say, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. It's a terrible disease in Jesus' day. And so they had heard about Jesus. In fact, uh, they cried out, Master. Uh, that Greek word for master is only used in Luke. It means, to define it, there's always a T-H-E in front of it. It means uh, the master, the captain, the ultimate authority. Uh, what it's saying is, there's not two authorities, there's not two masters, there's not two captains, which is interesting. They knew exactly who Jesus was. They didn't mind getting the blessing, but they didn't care enough to come back and get salvation. That's interesting, only one did. And, and, and so uh, Jesus says, if you want to be healed, go show yourself to the priest, which is what Deuteronomy said to do. Once you get healed from leprosy, you go to the priest. And truth is, they'd already been to the priest as soon as they got the blemishes, they went to the priest as law required, and the priest would have looked and said, you got leprosy, and this is all they could have done. The priest would have said, don't ever come back unless you get healed. In other words, we can't help you. We can't do anything, which is really what religion is. We can't do anything for you. We can't cure you. The uh, best of luck. And so Jesus says, if you want to be healed, go show yourself to the priest which shook some faith. So as they were traveling to the temple... They got healed. It doesn't tell us exactly what happened. God healed them. But what I'm saying is we don't know if maybe one of them looked at another one and said, hey, 
your face is normal. You don't have leprosy anymore. Maybe they felt a burning sensation and said, hey, we don't have leprosy. But whenever they discovered they didn't have leprosy, I'm assuming that the Samaritan must have said something like this, hey, I got a neat idea. Why don't we turn around and go back and fall at the feet of Jesus? Why don't we give him our gratitude? And the other nine, I guess they took a vote. And the vote said nine to one, we ain't going back. Now, here's why it's interesting he was a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews had nothing to do with each other. Let me put this in content, not to say anything offensive. We didn't live back in this day in our history 2,000 years ago. We, unless you studied it, it may not catch your attention. If I had read this, if I said Jesus uh, was in Georgia, uh, South Georgia in 1930, and nine uh, white men who belonged to the Ku Klux Klan was traveling with an African-American man, would that catch your attention? It would, wouldn't it? Am I right, David? That was what happened here. You say, if that's how they felt. Listen, Jews thought Samaritans were worse than a dog. Uh, Jews didn't believe that Samaritans had any part of going to heaven. And that's why Jesus said, you're the only one? You mean to tell me a foreigner's come back? And the other nine who are Jewish didn't even turn around to say a thank you to me for what I've done? And so you might ask, well, why were they together? My mother, when she was living, used to say this all the time, misery loves company. They wouldn't have been together except for one reason. They all had leprosy. But here's the point I'm making. All of a sudden they get healed. Sometimes when, when you get healed, sometimes when a blessing comes your way, you can get a little arrogant. You, you, you forget what it was before the blessing comes. And all of a sudden, the Samaritan says, and I'm going to put our language. What he says is, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we skip church? Why don't we not go to the temple? Let's go back to Jesus. And you know, I bet some of those nine said this. I bet someone said, I knew it. We should never let that pagan travel. Why, he's not even spiritual enough to go back to the priest and show himself. What would you do? And I'm going to be honest with you. There'd be at least a temptation in my mind to, to try to be logical. In my mind, I might think, well, Lord, I'm going to go back and thank you. But, you know, since I have to go to the temple anyway, there's no reason to cause a stir here. Let me go to the temple real quick and do what I need to do. And uh, they don't have to know this, do they, Lord? I'll just turn around. But, see, that'd be the wrong thing to do. He understood that a spiritual decision is an immediate decision. Now, let me tell you what I believe. We don't understand the urgency of making spiritual decisions. We, we, we don't grasp it. Uh, most of us have every intention of being what God wants us to be or you can be at church tonight. But the problem is, we're not going to do it tonight. We didn't do it yesterday. We're not going to do it tomorrow. But one of these days, we'll do it. Let me give you an example. I, I, I've never run across a guy who says, hey, uh, uh, Steve, they, they just ordained me to be a deacon. Wow, that's awesome. What, what's your goal? Now, I've been thinking I'd like to be the worst deacon George has ever had. Well, you might be the worst deacon, but I bet that's not your goal. I, I, I have never, as a pastor, when I was on staff, I never went to the hospital and stood outside that window and saw a new, new baby with a dad. Well, which one's your That one. I've never had a dad tell me, yeah, I've been thinking about it. You know, I'm going to let that boy grow up. He's never going to see me on my knees praying. He's never going to see me shout amen. He's never going to see me win a person to Jesus. I've never been told that. But can I tell you, I have had a lot of dads who, when the boy turned 20 or 25 years old, come to my office in tears because they did not live the life they should have lived, and the kids rebelled now. You know why? 
Because we always believe one day I'll be a good deacon, but there's no urgency. There's no immediacy about it. One of these days, I'm going to go and fall at the feet of Jesus. I'm not going to do it now. But one of these days, for some reason, the Samaritan guy understood when you make a spiritual decision, it's all about me. And it's not a selfish thing. You can't make a spiritual decision for me. Uh, you can't ma- and I can't make one for you. Somehow he understood even if the other nine, even if they don't want to go back, I'm going to go back and worship Jesus. And I'm going to go back now, even if they make fun of me. And I'm going to tell you, knowing human uh, motives, knowing human uh, characteristics, I promise you these nine Jews, when he said, why don't we go, no, we're not going to go, we're going to the temple, we're not going back to Jesus, we got what we want, we're not going back to him. When he said, well, fellas, I'm going to go back anyway, I guarantee you they didn't say, well, we're not going to go back, but we admire your courage, we admire your boldness. I know they didn't say that. What they said, echoing his ear as he traveled back, they probably said, you fool, you pagan, you heathen, but yet he understood it's an individual response, and secondly, it's an immediate response. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it now. Herschel Hobbes says, good things he did it now. He had no way of knowing this. I, I'm not sure if it's just something he, he just naturally understood if you're going to obey God, go ahead and obey him now. Now's the day to do it. But one thing Herschel Hobbes pointed out is this. Unbeknown to him, Jesus is headed to the cross. Unbeknown to him, there ain't going to be no, no tomorrow on that road. Jesus is traveling. He's not going to stop. He's headed to a certain direction. Serving God is always an immediate response. Second, third thing is this. Saying yes to Jesus, making a spiritual getting saved. Now, before I say this, I'm just going to plant something here. I was a member of a Southern Baptist church. I grew up at Southern Baptist church before I got saved. I joined. I thought I was saved when I was 14. It's all I've ever done. And I will tell you, because this is my history, this is the toughest thing about making a spiritual decision for Baptists. It is. Making a spiritual decision is an intense response. I've preached revivals before where folks come out of the balcony and people get saved. That's kind of emotional. Well, you get emotional at the movie theater, and that's fake. You get emotional for the University of Georgia, and they ain't never won nothing but one championship. I've been here since 93. I love the Atlanta Falcons. They're worse than the University of Georgia. They ain't never won no championship. And still, I'm excited about the upcoming year, who they may draft. And my point is this, nothing wrong with being like in football. If I can be excited about an Atlanta Falcon team, they ain't never won nothing. How much more can I be excited about Jesus who ain't ever lost nothing? And the Bible says this. The Bible says he came back, and there was some intensity. And let me tell you something. If all I knew was this, if all I knew was the man came back and felt the feet of Jesus, I would tell you I would preach it the same way. I would tell you, man, I can see in my mind he came back. Boy, I bet he was excited. I bet he was shouting. But see, if I said that, somebody would leave the night and say, well, preacher, don't say he was shouting. Well, it does. You know what's interesting? When God writes the Bible, he doesn't give us everything, does he? So what do you mean? Well, for example, can you name one of these men? Well, what were their names? I don't know why. Because God didn't tell you. Did they have names? Well, yeah. How old were they? I don't know. Were they all married? have no idea. What were the ages? don't know. And by the way, if God told everything of the life story of all ten men, there'd be a book as big as the Bible just on this story. So it's very interesting 
when God puts any word in one of, in one of these episodes, in one of these events. Why? Because it's very important. And so God inspired an adjective to describe the man's voice. Did you catch it? The man came back and with a loud voice gave praise to God. I'm going to say something, Dr. Mills, that sometimes I wonder if I should say, I don't like saying it, but it's true. We live in a culture, and all, by the way, it's always been this way since Jesus' day. You can preach false doctrine with excitement and fill up a building. And you can preach the truth and, and act like you're dead and nobody's interested. So I said, well, that's the choice. I'd rather tell. It's not, an e- uh, it's not an either or. It can be a both and. In other words, it, it, think about this. And I'm not putting anybody down. But people who, for example, are charismatic. I'm just, I'm just saying this. Hear me. Because I'm preaching to me, not them. A charismatic, if he's a true charismatic, believes you can lose your salvation. But when you go to their service, man, they're just excited. Now, I'm preaching to me, not them. If you can be excited about a God who can't even keep you saved, how much more should I be excited when I say, charismatic, it's better than that. Jesus says if you're in his hand, the devil himself can't pluck you out. And most of our Baptist churches are suffering because we've got truth, but we're not excited about it. He came back and with a loud voice. You know why? Because that's human nature. You know why I might shout for the University of Georgia? I love the University of Georgia. I've been, been in state since 93. I love to see him win. You know, I, I shot for the Atlanta Falcons. I've been in Georgia since 93. I'm a football fan. I love, now, now, understand, I understand when they lose, I, I still get a good night's sleep. I don't lose any money when they lose. I, don't, I mean, I'm not that kind of a fan. It's human nature. And if I can shout about that, that the reality is, a hundred years from now, nobody cares who won the last Super Bowl. Uh, if you ask me, if you said, I've got a hundred dollars, name the last ten Miss America. Keep your money. I have no idea who won it last year and don't care. But if we can be excited about those things, how much more about God? Now, let, let, let me quickly tell you a story. In, in Luke 19, I believe it is, just a couple chapters past this one. Jesus is having the triumphant entry. He's about to be crucified. He's about, about to go on trial. He's come, his life's coming to an end. And, and, and the same thing happened. It says the disciples in the same action, with a loud voice, begin to praise him. But the difference is uh, the Pharisees, the, the, some of the Baptist folks, you know, those type of folks, they were standing over there and they were like this. And as soon as they could, they, they said, Jesus, come here, I want to tell you something. You ought to tell your disciples to keep their mouth shut. That, that's basically what the Greek phrase is. Tell, tell them to be quiet. But it was a strong Greek word. Basically, they were saying they need to shut their mouth. You know what Jesus did? I love it. Jesus said, you obviously don't know the type of God I am. If every human ceased to give me praise, and he points to a rock, the stones would jump up and praise my name. I don't know if that means anything to you. When when you bowed today in your devotion time and you prayed, did, did you pause to consider that you were entering the presence of a God who if humans cease to praise him, the songs of the road might jump up and shout for glory. I, 
I got in a weird mood one time. I got to think about that, that verse. I was reading through the Bible. I hadn't been Luke 19. I paused. got to think. Well, what, what, what if songs did jump up? Wouldn't that be? What if, if tonight God looked down from heaven and said, boy, that's a, that's a pathetic preacher down there at Beach Haven and behind that pulpit talking about me. Boy, he's just not very excited. Boy, that's some sad-looking faces there on a Tuesday night. And all of a sudden, I'm preaching, and you just over here, you hear a, Man, a deacon doesn't throw a rock at me or something. What's this rock? And the rock says, I'm the, I'm the rock that David grabbed when he killed Goliath. And God told me to stop by and tell you, he's a giant killing God. And any giant you're going to face, you can trust him to take care of the giants. You can sleep in peace because he's greater than any giant that ever come your way. I'm here preaching. All of a sudden, big old rock falls. I said, what's that? And the rock says, I'm the, I'm the stone that Moses carved out the Ten Commandments. And I'm here to tell you, in a day of political correctness where folks are afraid to say the truth. You serve a God who's not politically correct. He says thou shalt and thou shalt not. That's the way it is. That's the way he's always been. Can't, can't you give God praise for being a God who is, speaks with such clarity? All of a sudden the rock jumps up and says, what rock, who are you? And the rock says, I'm the rock that the men grabbed in John chapter 8. And they wanted to stone a lady. I was picked up by the hand of the law but laid down at the feet of grace. Jesus would not let them. And that rock says, I'm here to tell you that sometimes when folks want to stone you, sometimes when you might want to stone yourself, grace steps in. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. We, we look at these stones over here and say, so who, who are you? And man, there's, there's 12 of them. And they say, we're the 12 stones that Elijah gathered and the fire fell from heaven. And God wanted us to stop by and tell you, he's still the God who can send revival anytime folks humble and cry. Now let me give you one. There's hundreds of rocks in the Bible. All of a sudden, about a 2,500-pound rock jumps up here. Rock, who are you? And he says, well, I'm the granddaddy of rocks. They use me to seal tombs. And I've got an interesting story. Every time we have our rock family reunion, <laughs> I always tell them, man, they, they, they put me over that man's tomb. And first day, everything went normal. Second day. But the third day, the angel rolled me away. And I saw it with my own eyes. That dude was living, and he's living today. Man, that ought to make a mannequin shout. We serve a God who defeated sin, death, and the grave. And so when you make a spiritual decision, sometimes folks will say this, well, you know, I went to Billy Graham Crusader. I went to uh, this crusade. I went there. Uh, a lot of those folks just got emotional. Well, amen, they get emotional down there at the Georgia football game. They get emotional on the basketball court. They get emotional on a lot of things. Hey, I went to movies. I, I went to movies that I knew weren't even a true story and have a tear in my eye, and I know it ain't true. I'm emotional about some things. If I'm emotional about things that don't matter, shouldn't I be emotional about a God who loved me enough that he died on the cross for you and for me? And the last thing is this. Making a spiritual decision is always an inferior response. Did you catch that last part of the passage we read? It says that uh, the man came running and fell at the feet of Jesus. It's an interesting phrase in Greek. What it means is this. He came running, but he never really stopped. You say, well, how's that? What it means is he came running full speed. Now, I don't know how far away he was. I don't know if he was a mile away. Too. I don't know. All I know is he came running full speed. And when he got to Jesus, he kind of slid. Let me, anybody here old enough, or maybe you've seen Reed Rose, anybody remember how Pete Rose used to slide in the home plate? That's the word picture in my mind. He came running, 
And when he got close enough to Jesus, his feet left the air. And there must have been a time where his body was just straight. And when he landed in the dust settled, he was at the feet of Jesus. And by being inferior, I can tell you what he was saying. He would not have ever bowed to just any man. Uh, he, he wouldn't have just bowed to anybody, no more than you would. Uh, you know, we don't have enough money tonight, I don't think, for most of us. If I came to you and said, hey, I'll give you, I'll give you $100 if you'll bow and lick my shoe. Well, there'd be, probably be a fight breakout. We would never do that. But you know what he's saying? By bowing at the feet of Jesus, he's saying it's, it's the best theological lesson where he's saying, you're God, and I know I'm not. By the way, that would solve most problems you ever have in church. If people just understood, he's God, and I'm not. And by the way, not only are you not God, you ain't never going to be God. All these songs we're singing, this book we're reading, we will never meet and sing about you. Why? Because he alone is worthy to be worshipped. There's no preacher worthy. There's no state convention. There, no one else is worthy except God. He bows at the feet of Jesus. And what he's saying is, you are Lord. Of course, one of the saddest things about the passage is, Jesus receives the worship, whether it's five minutes or 50, we don't know how long it was. But once the worship time's over, Jesus says, uh, it's a rhetorical question. There's no answer because there's no need for an answer. Jesus knows. Why? Weren't there 10 of you guys? Yeah, there's 10. Of course there's 10. Where's the other nine? Are you the only one who came back to make a spiritual decision? The implication is he's such an awesome God. All 10 should have come back. All 10 should have fell at his feet. All 10 should have not just got saved in body. All 10 should have got saved from their sin. But as far as we know, none of the other nine ever did. That's how we make a spiritual decision. Making a spiritual decision is always an individual response. I don't have to look and say, well, if five other people do it or this person. No, it's my choice. Making a spiritual decision is always an immediate response because I always have that, that, that thought. Well, I'm going to do it. One of these days I'm going to really preach, but I'm going to wait till next week. No, if you're going to do it, do it now. You're not promised next week. Making a spiritual decision is always an intense response because it's important. It, 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 there should be some emotion behind it. And it's always an inferior response because a true spiritual decision is always me acknowledging I'm bowing my knee to the one who's worthy to be bowed to. Jesus always stands. He always stands at the door. Now, of course, the most important thing is for us is we're lost. He, he's knocking. We ought to say yes to salvation. But I'm going to cast a little bit wider than that and tell you all through our life, my life included. If I lived to be 100, this would be true. He's always inviting us to a fresh obedience. He's always inviting us to a new walk. He's always inviting us to a deeper commitment. You know why we don't often open the door? You know why we don't make the spiritual decision? One thing is pride. You know, in every congregation, there's folks, especially people like me, there's men, but there's all of us, but there's men especially, who if you said, I'll give you $100 if you went down and bowed your knee at the altar, there are men who'd never take that money because to them it's like, I'm not, you're never going to see me bow my knee. Pride, there's something about pride. What would people think? Second, presumption. I know this when I preach. I know this when everybody preaches. I know this when you witness there's always folks who will say, well, I know what you're talking about. And, and, and then they'll say, I really get it when I talk one-on-one -on -one the person because I can ask questions. Well, man, I, I know what you're saying. I've done that. What do you mean you've done it? Oh, man, I've been baptized. I'm not talking about baptism. I'm talking about 
following Jesus. Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. I try to live a good life. I'm not talking about living a good life. I think it's good to do. I'm talking about living a good life. I'm talking about Jesus. And sometimes we don't open the door when Jesus knocks because we, we, we're very presumptuous. We believe, I don't need to open that door. I've already done that. And then the third thing is this, and this is a hard thing to overcome, even when you talk to somebody one-on-one. We procrastinate. You know why it's so hard to overcome? Because a procrastinator is saying this. I agree with every word you're saying. I believe all of it. And one of these days, I'm going to do it. And I always urge them, well, why not now? Why not at Starbucks? Why, why not you know, at, at, at McDonald's? Why not at Chick-fil-A? Why, we can do it. Why not in your house? Why not now? And a procrastinator always has a reason why it's better to wait. And so as we go into our prayer time, our invitation time, Jesus is often knocking on the heart's door. And it's that little desire, I want to serve him. I, I, want, to do, I want to do this. And the question is always, if. It's a conditional invitation. If you'll open the door, he always does his part. I want every head bowed, every eyes closed. We're going to have a time of invitation tonight. And I want you to think as we go into invitation time and say something I've said all week, and I think you find this to be true, invitations don't last long. These services, if you notice, they're not 90 minutes or two-hour services. They're about 60-minute services, and that usually includes the invitation. And the invitation, it just goes by before you know it. If you've been here in every service, most of this revival is behind us. Most of this Harvest Crusade is finished. We're here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night now. Tuesday night's almost over. We've got one more service. And if you're not careful, you'll do something you've done for a long time in your life. You'll let another opportunity pass you by without opening the door. So, so let me make a few statements tonight. First of all, the most important thing, if you're here tonight, and if I asked you, and, and just, just pretend you're the individual person, just me and you here, there's no one else around, I'm asking you, friend, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Are you just 100% sure? Just no doubt about it. What would be your response? If your response is anything less than absolutely, if your response is, well, I kind of think so, if your response is, well, I'm hoping so, if your response is, I, I believe I am, but I have some doubts, or your response may be, no, I've never made that decision. And I want you to listen to me. This is your invitation. This is your individual opportunity to make a decision. And there ought to be some urgency about it because you never know when Jesus is going to pass by your life again. You just never know when these opportunities are going to come your way. And if that describes you, let me encourage you to do something. Why don't you pray and ask God to be Lord of your life? You can do that on your own. You, you can just pray and ask the Lord to be Lord of your life. But you may be like I was when I prayed the prayer. You, you may say, well, I'm not sure what I, I don't even know what I'm supposed to pray. I would pray something like this just in your heart. Dear God, Father, I thank you because you do invite me. I thank you that you love me. And Lord, in this prayer, I confess I'm a sinner. I have fallen short of your glory. Father, in this prayer, I want to repent of my sins. I, I want to turn from being my own boss. And Lord, I want you to be my Lord. I want to obey you and follow you. And Father, with this prayer, I invite you into my heart to live, to be my Lord and be my Savior. And, Lord, from this day forward, help me to mature, to grow, and to live for you and to tell others. Now, I'm not going to ask you, not going to embarrass you, raise your hand. That's between you and God, but I'm going to tell you this. If you prayed that prayer, and you know if you did or not, if you prayed that prayer, we have the invitation. Why don't you come forward? You're going to have some staff down front. Dr. Mills and others will be down front. Why don't you just come down and just simply say this. Say, I prayed that prayer. 
they'll know exactly what you mean. We're trying to make it as simple as it can be. You'll be glad you did. But maybe you're here tonight, and if I say, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? Your response is, absolutely. I cast a little bit wider invitation tonight than the other services. Maybe Jesus has been knocking at your door. You know, last night as we left, I felt challenged. I don't know if you caught that challenge, but Dr. Mills got up and talked about having 15 people on the prayer list, talked about praying with a broken heart. Not just praying, but with a broken heart. Talked about once we pray, looking for ways to invite and to witness. Well, that's just one of many invitations that the Bible, that's just a great commission, praying and reaching people, witnessing. Well, let me ask you, are you doing that? Is your worship where it should be? Are, are you living as a steward of all that God's given you? Are you financially doing what God tells you to do? And the list goes on and on. If you would say, no, there's something I need to do. Why don't you go ahead right now and open that door and tell God, God, I'm going to obey you. Now, I don't know what you need to do about that. The altar's going to be open, or maybe you want somebody to pray with you. But whatever you need to do, step out and do that tonight. Father, we give this invitation time. We thank you that you give us the privilege. It's a great privilege to have choice. It's a great privilege to be able to choose life. It's a great privilege to be able to choose heaven. It's a great privilege to be able to choose prayer and witnessing and fellowship. Lord, uh, we don't deserve that opportunity, but Lord, we thank you for it. And Lord, I pray tonight, help people to choose you. Help people to open up the door. Lord, help people who already know you to rekindle, rekindle the fire of walking with you. And Lord, we give this invitation time. May every decision that's made be made in such a way that it gives you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand tonight. Everyone standing. Tim's going to lead us in a very appropriate song, I Surrender All. I Surrender. You don't have to wait for me else. You can surrender tonight.